Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including on August 2nd, a roundtable on the upcoming German elections and what it means for the future of the EU. Coming up on the show today, Peter Harcher, political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and author of the new book, Red Zone, China's Challenge and Australia's Future. Uh, Peter, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks very much, Richard. Well, congratulations on the book. So what is the China Challenge for Australia? Well, the China Challenge is that the great power that Australia thought was going to be the source of its future prosperity and future relevance to the world now turns out to be determined to crush it, to crush its sovereignty, to turn it into a vassal state, and until that happens to treat it as a pariah state. And that's what Australia is trying to deal with. That is the challenge of the moment. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating seeing just the extent to which China has been part of, of Australia, particularly the economy. You cite that by 2019, Australia earned 38% of all its overseas income from China. The governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia said it has more staff looking at China than any other overseas economy. Uh, it was, you say, the most China-dependent country on the planet. Yes, and remarkably, uh, Richard, even though China started imposing trade sanctions on a wide range of Australian exports uh, during the pandemic and during those uh, that series of trade bans on Australia, Australian export dependence on China actually went up. And uh, by the middle of last year, it had hit 48%, which is just a ridiculous amount. I mean, no prudent you know, company or country is that dependent on a single buyer. And yet that was the position, bizarrely, that we got ourselves into. Mind you, it wasn't the first time Australia had done something equally idiotic, um, although perhaps more understandable. In the 1950s, 60s, 70s, Australia was so dependent on Britain as its, you know, obviously former colonial master and for previous mother country, we'd become uh, heavily dependent on Britain and assumed that that was the permanent condition until, of course, Britain joined the European Common Market in 1973, uh, closed off a bunch of export privileges to Australian com- companies and industries and left a whole range of sectors reeling here. And we'd failed to learn the lesson of history. We'd, we'd committed exactly the same mistake, um, with, but this time with a country that we had probably had far less reason to trust. And yet we did it all over again. And now, um, you know, we were unable to exercise enough prudence and restraint to deal with that problem ourselves. So the Chinese Communist Party is fixing it for us with these (laughs) imposing these trade bans. They're forcing on us. Uh, the diversification that we should have been doing from the outset. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's interesting that, I mean, a lot of this uh, story really is very dark, but maybe that British experience is the one chink of light because obviously Australia emerges from that shock and eventually will become one of the most dynamic uh, economies in the world, always scores very highly on uh, various kind of happiness and productivity um, in uh, indices kind of around the world. So there is a kind of a sense that uh, even though it may look very grim now, that if Australia does somehow manage to pull itself, its economy out from the grips of China, maybe there is hope in the future. That is precisely correct, Richard, and that has been our experience. 
the shock administered to Australia from uh, that cutoff to, to the so-called mother country was a spur ultimately to um, a much needed economic reform, which has which put Australia uh, at the fore. I mean, we'd gone until last year, 30 years without a recession. Uh, we had remarkably high levels of, of growth and prosperity. Um, it was the, you know, the longest any developed country had ever gone uh, in a continuous growth cycle. So it did set the country up. And the two really interesting things that we're, I think we can see now as a result of uh, China imposing these trade bans on Australia. Uh, first is that Australia is coping. Uh, the, the evidence so far uh, is that the sky isn't falling. Uh, the economy, of course, like everybody's, uh, suffered pretty dreadfully from the pandemic, but is bouncing back very strongly. The China factor is not an impairment. Uh, almost all of the industries that have lost their China trade have successfully redirected their China exports elsewhere around the world. Uh, perhaps the wine sector is the only one that's really uh, having trouble at short notice redirecting their exports, but everybody else has been successful. And the private sector hasn't been uh, screaming at the government, um, putting you know pressure on the government to acquiesce and bend at the knee to concede to China. So. That's that's remarkable. It looks like Australia is standing up um, pretty successfully without making any concessions uh, along the lines that the Chinese Communist Party was hoping for. And total overall exports to China have barely budged. And the reason for that is we have some very highly priced rocks, Richard, which the Chinese economy needs called iron ore, which happened to be booming in price and volume. And that's holding up the overall sort of macro uh, trade very well. Yeah, I was, so that's I was, a bit of luck. Um, sorry, I was, so I was, I was going to ask you about that because that seems to demonstrate and reminds us that it's not all one way, that China's campaign to hurt Australia uh, through trade has floundered to some degree because it is a two-way street. Uh, as you say, Australia supplies most of China's iron, uh, iron ore. So uh, the, there is this kind of sense that uh, it's, it's not that Australia is just a victim here. It is genuinely a trade relationship. Yes, exactly right. I mean, there's, the Chinese economy hadn't been buying all those Australian imports for all those years as an act of charity, had it? They actually wanted and needed the exports. And so uh, there have been, it, look, it is interesting, however, that the Chinese government has been prepared to wear some domestic pain to inflict these trade bans on Australia. They haven't uh, cut into their imports from Australia on iron ore, uh, which of course, you know, is the essential steel making ingredient. But um, they have been prepared to uh, do themselves some harm with both uh, food supply and coal supply. Uh, last year, Xi Jinping launched an, a so-called empty plate campaign to discourage food wastage because of uh, concerns over food security and food supply. Yet at the same time that he's doing that, he's imposing trade bans on imports of Australian beef and Australian barley and other commodities. Uh, last year, China saw some blackouts in some of its major cities for days because of a shortage of thermal coal to run its electric power plants. And yet at the same time, uh, China is restricting imports of Australian thermal coal. So it is interesting that they have been prepared, even at the cost of some domestic pain, uh, to impose this cost on Australia. And it's a pretty 
telling indication, I think, of political uh, will and the priority that Xi Jinping is putting on trying to tame Australia. And it should also give it encouragement to other countries, Richard, that it is possible to to be subject of China's sanctions and survive. I mean, you know, we're not the first country. Uh, there's a little country right next to America that have, has been surviving American trade embargo since 1962 called Cuba. <laughs> you can survive these things. I mean, it's interesting. We've we've spent uh, a bit of time talking about trade and finance and so on. But, you know, one of the points that you make clear in the book is that this is more than just simply about trade, that um, you quote um, ASIO, the Australian Security and Intelligence Service, uh, saying that China is an existential threat. This, this is something that gets to the core of what Australia is as a democracy. Yes, and we really saw that uh, exposed when last November, the Chinese government delivered a demarche, a list of demands on Australia of exactly what it wanted Australia to do, how it wanted Australia to change policy and law in the short term, in the immediate term. In the midst of all these trade bans and sanctions, two Chinese diplomats from their embassy in Canberra presented a list of 14, a 14 point list of demands to an Australian journalist for publication, uh, set up and introduced with the words, uh, if China is angry, if you make China the enemy, China will be your enemy. And with, uh, with that in mind, presented this list of 14 demands. Now that 14 list of 14 demands um, begins with uh, the demand that Australia not block any investment from China. So that's that's how it starts. Um, number, number two, and don't worry, I'm not going to list the entire 14, but just to give you a quick sampling, number two is that Australia has to accept Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications uh, gear manufacturer, into its 5G network. Australia was the first country in the world to block China from its uh, 5G network. And it goes all the way through to telling Australian members of parliament that they should not criticize China, to muzzling the Australian media so that it doesn't publish, quote, anti-China articles, unquote, and so on and so on. Um, it, this list of 14 constitutes uh, a whole series of demands on uh, Australian liberties and laws that would involve the surrender of Australian sovereignty if this, in fact, if we were to yield to these things. And uh, the China director on Biden's National Security Council, Rush Doshi, has said that uh, this, when he, before he joined the White House while he was at Brookings, said that this list of 14 constituted, in his words, a kind of blueprint for the illiberal social and world order that China wants to build. Yes, it's, it's fascinating that debate and decision about Huawei and the, the 5G network that you, you show how Ma Malcolm Turnbull, who was the prime minister at the time, really did want to find a middle way on 5G. But, but ultimately, he decided and the government decided that it was just impossible, that this really had become about fundamentals in ways that you've just described with those, with those 14 points there. Yes, uh, Malcolm Turnbull... Uh, uh, a wealthy former businessman before he entered, entered politics and had a lot of dealings with China. He knew that if he took this course, uh, became the first country in the world to block Huawei from, and ZTE, or as Americans would say, ZTE from the 5G network, 
that there would be a political, uh, perhaps economic, price to pay. And of course, he was right. Um, at that point, they, the Chinese government hadn't got around to the trade bans, but it imposed a political freeze on contacts with Australia. No Australian minister has been able to place a phone call to his Australian counterpart for two years now, and there's been no contact at the leader level for more than three years. So Turnbull knew that that was coming, tried to get his uh, security and signals intelligence boffins to find a way to render the Huawei system uh, safe, acceptable, uh, to get the risk mitigated somehow. And in the end, the, the Australian equivalent of America's NSA um, came to Turnbull and said, look, yes, we've spent months on this. Uh, we've had our red team trying to crack the system. We've come up with this and uh, this and that. And there's, here's a list. And they pre presented him. They pulled out these big sheets of A4 paper. And the spooks presented the prime minister with uh, this spreadsheet of 300 risk mitigation measures that Australia would have to impose on Huawei before it could accept it into its network. And then the head of the, the NSA equivalent, uh, called the Australian Signals Directorate, then said to Turnbull, but look, you could impose all 300 of these mitigation strategies on Huawei, and we still think the risk would be unacceptably high. And the risk being not, not simply espionage, but that the Chinese government could say to Huawei, uh, shut Australia down, and Huawei would have no choice but to do so. And Australia's you know, central nerve system, 5G, Internet of Things and all that, uh, could be rendered... Uh, you know, rendered useless at the drop of a hat. And that was ultimately the, the advice he took and the decision he, he made. One of the things that is fascinating about the book is that it's not just dealing with contemporary events. In, in You look at the relationship between the two countries over several decades. And the kind of one of the really amazing elements in that story is this story of a father and son, uh, Ross Garno and John Garno, who write these two different reports to, for the Australian government on the relationship. Uh, the first, uh, Ross Garno, written in 1989, urges Australia to take advantage of this rising power. The Sun's report, uh, which comes 30 years later, uh, says that uh, Australia is now the canary in the coal mine on Chinese interference. No one knows what happens when a country stands its ground. That, that relationship between father and son seems to almost encapsulate what has happened uh, during the period. And you make the point that uh, it's not Australia that's changed. You say that it's China that's changed. Absolutely. And it, it is a, a stark illustration of the change in those 30 years. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Look, Australia did not want uh, a confrontation with China. Uh, Australia was not looking uh, to in any way inhibit the relationship. Australia had developed, as, as almost all countries on the planet have, um, a very fond fantasy of a, a future of endless, effortless profits rolling from trade with China. Uh, many countries, as you know, signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative, endless billions of dollars of investment from China um, and warm relations forever. And Australia was happy to let that roll on. Um, what happened was that uh, the program of intrusion and interference, which had been announced, by the way, by a Chinese defector to Australia, a diplomat who'd been working in Sydney, defected to Australia and said in 2005, that there had been a high-level decision to infiltrate Australia in every way possible because it was, quote, the weak link in the Western chain 
unquote, that that program of uh, interference had become uh, so glaring and uh, so intrusive that something had to, had to give. Uh, and Australia, against its will, <laughs> against its all its own impulses, finally was moved out of uh, out of that sort of torpor of material gain and uh, easy living to defend its sovereignty. And the confrontation you see is a is a direct result. And you also show how really Chinese influence has been a pretty low rent kind of a thing over time. Chinese agents of influence in the past have brought Australian politicians for really relatively small amounts of money. There are the uh, what you describe as the useful idiots in the uh, in the universities opening uh, things like the Confucius Cultural Institutes and so on. So it kind of in in some ways uh, in the past Australia uh, you seem to imply has come cheap oh yes and the case study that um, I think you just touched on there that uh, really uh, illuminated the, the the situation and galvanized the public uh, and the political system into uh, in, into action was uh, <laughs> a case study in how cheaply Australian politicians can be bought um, a Chinese billionaire who'd set up in Australia and was a, a permanent resident um, Huang Jimou uh, had cultivated a number of politicians uh, from both sides of the parliament. And the, this, in this particular case, an Australian senator from the Labour Party called Sam Dastiari um, was found to have uh, a, a adopted Chinese Communist Party policy on uh, things like the South China Sea and China's uh, demands on the territory claimed also by its neighbours. Uh, and he'd done this, this Australian senator had done this in return for a few thousand dollars uh, in in travel bills, a few hundred dollars in telephone expenses. Uh, this level of, 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 uh, of favour trading from a billionaire who in a single year, we learned later, <laughs> was putting $800 million across the gaming tables of a single, a single Australian casino. So, I mean, these guys must laugh up their sleeves at how cheaply Australian politicians could be bought. And the really disturbing thing about all, all of that, Richard, was that it was all legal. Uh, everything that happened in that exchange of favours, the money flowing to the senator, the senator then changing policy to spout Beijing's lines, was all legal. And that really shocked the system and shocked the public uh, into starting to take this, this entire thing more seriously. I suppose the other side of that coin, or should it be the other side of that chip? I don't know. Um, the the other side <laughs> is the is is the vast sums which China has been prepared to spend in Australia, but globally too, on the kind of Belt and Road program, the modernised Silk Road uh, infrastructure is a well tested Trojan horse for Chinese power. You say infrastructure is the friendly forerunner of an uglier political and even military influence. Yes, exactly. And uh, that experience we saw first in Tibet, uh, and then we saw in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs and the, the people's uh, exiles from those uh, parts of China um, have made that point to me in impassioned uh, ways, told stories of how their, uh, their, their parents, their grandparents, their forebears had been, uh, you know, welcoming building of Chinese roads, um, Chinese troops smiling at them while the roads were 
were being constructed and you know giving them giving them small coins and the whole thing was seen as just a, a, a party of Chinese generosity and goodwill um, yet uh, that happy image soon dissipated when the tanks and the, and the trucks full of troops started rolling down the road into Tibet into Xinjiang and you know you would have to be a pretty naive to think that the Chinese Communist Party isn't going to use the Belt and Road Initiative to extend uh, its political and economic influence to the countries which accept it. I mean, it's um, it's axiomatic. That's what great powers do. And there's been a naivety about this, but the uh, the sheer volume, as you say, of cash is irresistible to politicians. Um, and of course, there's there's the overt cash that goes on the projects, and then there's the covert cash. Uh, and we ha we've had politicians from a number of countries come forward to say that they've been offered uh, bribes, personal emoluments, shall we say, to roll with these projects. And it, it, it is just proving, um, even with the difficulties that the project's encountering and the resistance and the popular movements uh, it's, it's engendering, uh, it still proves just overwhelmingly tempting for way too many countries. And, the, and finally, we saw the, the G7, the G20 come up with a a kind of early phase uh, counter to that, but we've yet to see whether that's going to have any real impact. I mean, you mentioned the the Uyghurs there, um, the plight uh, the plight of the Uyghurs, concentration camps, police state, and and so on. Uh, the U.S. State Department has, desc has described it as a genocide. Do you think that that's changed the narrative of how China is seen in the West? That it finally seems to be an issue that the the broader public understands, has some conception of what is happening there. Yes, I do. Absolutely. It's completely uh, altered the public face of, of China in the world. Uh, interestingly, we learned from John Bolton, Donald Trump's uh, former national security advisor, that Xi Jinping had actually tried the idea out on Donald Trump before he decided to proceed with building these mass concentration camps um, on a remarkable scale. And uh, he'd said, and Donald Trump had encouraged him to go ahead, according to John, John Bolton. John Bolton says uh, he was on the call uh, with Trump at the time, and that's in his memoir, um, and that Donald Trump had encouraged him to go ahead. Um, so Xi Jinping wasn't calculating on any Western opposition or criticism. They tried to do the thing covertly, as you know, and when the first reports emerged um, that these mass concentration camps were being built, um, the Chinese government denied it, denied that they even existed before then changing the story and saying they're re-education camps. Um, and yes, it, it has become uh, the, a shocking and uh, very ugly uh, face and part of the awakening and it puts a, a whole new um, uh, aspect on, on the, the oppression that the Chinese Communist Party is prepared to impose on people and the stories that have emerged have just been horrible. And I remember when I interviewed Rabia Qadir, the, 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 one of the leading voices of the Uyghur movement in 2017, I was really sceptical. I, I, I thought some of the things she was saying was simply too shocking to be true. Um, and yet, of course, she's been absolutely vindicated and, and more. And it's, uh, the appalling stories continue. I mean, I, I suppose that does raise the, the kind of the question, the bigger question in some ways, um, I mean, what what will Australia and the world look like, do you think, if China 
fulfills its strategic objectives? What what does China want from the world? What does it want from Australia? Well, I think what we see from China's foreign ambitions is an extension of the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party and in particular its leader, Xi Jinping, at home. Uh, as you know, Richard, this is a regime that's been very successful holding power much longer than almost anybody thought they could. The uh, great motivator for Xi Jinping, apart from survival, uh, is the case study of the Soviet Union. He said the Soviet Union collapsed because, quote, no one was man enough, unquote, uh, to uphold the Communist Party and its power in Russia and the Soviet Union. So he thinks uh, it's first that China's power, the Communist Party's grip on power, is always under threat. Second, that the response is always to get tougher, to be, quote, man enough, unquote. Uh, and that combination of uh, insecurity or even paranoia, together with determination uh, to use sheer force, sheer power as the instrument of delivering that security and control, uh, comes together. The, the further China can extend its reach into the world, the further it will seek to protect itself and its own power. And a lot of the motivation, I think, uh, probably almost all the motivation that comes from Xi Jinping for this is defensive. It doesn't look defensive when you're on the receiving end, when you're in another country. But the purpose, I think, from my best uh, study of, of, of Xi, of Chinese policy, is that the intention is to make the world safe for Chinese uh, totalitarianism, for, for the Chinese Communist Party's regime at home. And uh, one of the priorities is to silence foreign critics. Uh, another is to assert uh, territorial control. But when, 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 it's, it, when it comes to uh, the list of 14 demands that I mentioned to you, Richard, it's very telling that um, almost half of the, the 14 demands relate to trying to stifle criticism from Australia, from politicians, from NGOs, from the media. Uh, they, she wants, Xi Jinping wants uh, to look respectable and credible in the world, wants not to have uh, his regime threatened uh, in any way, shape or form. And I think that's at the heart of the project, is to render states, um, uh, to neutralise any opposition to China and to make the world safe for Xi Jinping. What about allies? I'd, I see that this week President Macron of France said that he wants to counter Chinese expansionism in the Pacific. Donald Trump did did confront China. You talk about that in the book, but you say only on America's account, not as part of an alliance. How is this going to shake out for the Western alliance, do you think? Well, it's, it's very interesting. The trend here uh, is that the Western alliance is slowly, slowly... Uh, coalescing around the realization that uh, that this is um, a challenge on a global scale, ranging from China's ambitions, it has ambitions everywhere from the Arctic to the Antarctic and quite developed plans accordingly, and everywhere. And I think we see um, all the movement has been in one direction. It's unsteady, it's slow, but whether whether it's the uh, the European 
uh, Union, whether it's NATO, whether it's Japan, um, whether or indeed Australia, and many of the not, you know, non-Western states in between, all of the movement in the last two years, three years perhaps, has been a toughening against uh, Chinese intrusions. And Xi Jinping, of course, aggravated all of that with so-called wolf warrior diplomacy and a stepped up level of aggression uh, across the border with India, uh, with uh, increasing near daily in incursions into the airspace of Japan with the uh, Chinese Air Force. So uh, I, I think the world is coming to coalesce. It's already coalesced in its concerns, in its stated concerns. What it hasn't coalesced in yet uh, is unified new policy. Um, perhaps the biggest indication, the biggest structural change in global diplomacy to uh, symbolise this is the Quad group that Biden brought together at the leader level for the first time, the Quad being uh, four Indo-Pacific democracies, the US, India, Japan and Australia. That's really uh, taken shape in a way that the Chinese had said would never happen, that it was going to dissipate like, like foam on the ocean, and yet it's now um, a new uh, diplomatic structure. So we, we are seeing the world rearranging its concerns, its priorities in a way to try to oppose and frustrate Chinese ambitions and intrusions. But we've yet to see substantive policy in any way uh, internationally that would pose any real barrier or uh, limit on Chinese ambitions. So I, I remember hearing John Howard speak in 2006, and he said at that event that if there was one question he knew the answer to, uh, that he'd like to know the answer to 50 years in, from 50 years hence, it would be who would prevail between China and India. Um, and it, seems, it sounds to me as if what you're talking about there with the Quad in some ways is a reframing uh, of that same question that John Howard was asking at the beginning of the century. Well, it is, the, it is a, a problem that uh, the Chinese government faces, is its lack of allies. Uh, it's tried to, through the Belt and Road Initiative, cultivate and create a whole new brace of allies. But the allies that it, that it has, um, even if you can go so far as to call them allies, aren't exactly the sort of allies a country would really want uh, in a fight. Um, Pakistan, you know, uh, Laos, maybe Cambodia, these aren't, aren't impressive nation states. Uh, whereas the Western bloc and the, the US obviously stand at the center. And this is one of the defining differences that's often uh, overlooked between China and the US is that the US stands at the center of an alliance block of some 40 countries plus uh, now increasingly India, as you say, Richard, is enfolded uh, to an extent in that overlapping, overlapping set of relationships and alliances. As to the, the direct India-China relationship, the Indians were uh, quite happy to find some sort of accommodation uh, and a cheerful you know, relationship with the Chinese Communist Party until uh, the border skirmishes, which resulted last year in 40 dead Indian troops. And from that moment, there's been a real hardening of Indian policy again we see uh, Xi Jinping overreaching and countries pushing back. Um, longer term, of course, India is much less developed than China. 
But if you look at the demographic projections, China is now on a trajectory to uh, lose half its population by the end of this century, from 1.4 billion people to about 700 million, uh, because of the aging structure, largely thanks to its one child policy over the last 50 years. India, on the other hand, has a much younger demographic um, and its population uh, is not going to suffer that same decline. It's looking demographically to be um, a, a much more robust uh, and vigorous country. Its economic development, although way behind China, is proceeding apace. And the outlook for India uh, isn't actually too bad at all. And if you put that together with its uh, newfound sense of purpose together with the Quad and the US, then the, the odds have shifted against China, it must be said. And it, it seems to me that at the end of the book, one of the things that you're doing is really urging Australia to continue to be at the forefront uh, of this, uh, I suppose we have to call it battle. Uh, the stronger Australia stands, you say, the more inclined other countries will be to stand with it. No nation wants uh, a feeble ally. How resolved is Australia, do you think? Well, it's interesting, the Australian resolve to withstand Chinese government pressure has only strengthened since Xi Jinping decided to start imposing uh, political and trade sanctions on Australia. As you know, the, the White House so-called uh, Indo-Pacific czar, Kurt Campbell, uh, he said recently that 10 years ago, uh, he and colleagues in Washington feared that Australia would be the, uh, the first country to fall uh, unquote, to uh, Chinese Communist Party influence, that Australia was going to drop out of the Western alliance. He now says that that has turned out to be completely wrong, that Australia is turning out to be uh, particularly robust in this confrontation. All the indications here, uh, Richard, are that by trying to uh, impose its will on Australia so overtly, all it's done is solidify Australian public opinion, whether it's the opinion polls um, or the two main political parties. The, the two main parties are absolutely united at the federal level. It's a, it's a completely bipartisan commitment to, to stand up to China on this stuff. Um, and the fact that China's great apologists in years past, the most prominent of whom was a former Labor Prime Minister called Paul Keating, have fallen silent. Nobody in Australia uh, at, of any standing is any longer prepared to defend what China is doing here because it's become indefensible. So Australian resolve so far is holding up much better than almost anybody thought, including me, I have to say. Uh, there is a strong uh, national unity that's emerging. And what we don't have, however, <laughs> uh, what we don't have, however, Richard, uh, is the mobilization of policy for um, both economic uh, and defence, defence in the military, but also the larger uh, sense of grey war type uh, capabilities that Australia will need to deal with the pressure. And Australia is not really, um, doesn't seem to be motivated enough to retool itself for a larger, longer confrontation, is desperately keen to get whatever assistance it can from the Biden administration and just has to hope like hell that it doesn't get another Trump in the White House who has uh, pretty much who's pretty much indifferent to the interests of, of allies.
So the book is Red Zone, China's Challenge and Australia's Future. It's written by my guest, Peter Harcher, and published by Black Ink Books. But for now, Peter, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Bookstack is taking a break for the summer, but we'll be back again in September with more new books. Until then, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.